Hello and welcome, my name is Nicholas Ward and this is Historical Hysteria. And today we are hacking through the jungles of the Amazon through 400 years of history and myth along the road to El Dorado, the famed city of gold. The location of El Dorado is said to be one of the great mysteries of history, but I am here with good news. Not only have I found El Dorado, but you, listener, can too. El Dorado was found in 1866, just six miles north of Maddock, Ontario, the site of the first gold rush in Canada. Today it has a population of 2,078 and... Sorry, what? Not that El Dorado. Oh, uh, my bad. Uh, El Dorado is a former gold mining town on the northern border of Saskatchewan, Canada and... What? Not that one either. What about El Dorado, California? Colorado? Arkansas? Oh, the mythical El Dorado. Yeah, no, I have no idea where that is. Today, there are dozens of current and former El Dorados from America to Australia, usually the sites of current or former gold mines, named after one of the most alluring and pervasive legends of the millennia, that of El Dorado, the America's lost city of gold and the topic of today's show. Not El Dorado, Saskatchewan. I mean, El Dorado, Saskatchewan is next to Uranium City and has an average January temperature of negative 31 degrees, but I mean, I guess cities of gold are cool too. El Dorado is known as a mythical lost city or kingdom of gold somewhere in South America. It is also synonymous with a paradise or utopia like the name Shangri-La. The name translates into English as the Golden One and did not initially refer to a city. The story of the City of Gold begins in 1492 when Columbus arrived in modern-day Cuba, setting up a Spanish colony. He would search for a route to India while brutally enslaving the local populace before dying penniless and discredited. Between 1492 and 1519, the Spanish would send ships exploring along the coast who would bring back stories of wealthy and large cities in what is today Mexico. The stories told of people who had so much gold that even the poorest people could count their golden possessions. This was probably just a story, however Central America did have some very productive gold mines. Now, it's important to note, explorers and pioneers and con artists have always, always oversold their discoveries. Leif Erikson called one of the coldest places on earth Greenland, and Marco Polo wrote that there was a giant Christian kingdom in East Asia led by a guy called Prester John who never existed. The term a sailor's yarn meant a long, rambling and often fictitious story. Sailors loved making up stories. However, following the fall of the Aztec Empire in 1521, when treasure ships began arriving in Spain laden with golden plunder, and more importantly, with stories, of endless rivers of gold and more kingdoms just waiting to be sacked, those tall tales by drunken sailors of golden cities suddenly seemed very, very real. Stories have always been drivers of human behaviour. Marco Polo's tall tales drove Europeans in droves east in search of Cathay and the mythical kingdom of Prester John, and the embellished stories of the early conquistadors would drive wave after wave of would-be conquerors to the new world to find riches. However, it wasn't long before the easy gold plunder dried up and the desperate conquistadors turned to the far less sexy job of mining gold instead of plundering. And yet stories of abundant and easily plunderable gold continued. We know from the journals of conquistadors that the first question later conquistadors asked of any new locals they met was, where is all the gold? And those local groups often sent the conquistadors on their way with stories of vast and wealthy kingdoms that are just over that hill over there and not where we are right now. 
But after a decade of scouring Central America and the west coast of South America, they came up with nothing. In 1531, in what is today Venezuela, conquistador Diego de Ordaz is told that there is a kingdom named Meta that is abundant with gold and ruled by a king with one eye. He and others will spend the next seven years searching fruitlessly around modern-day Venezuela for this tribe. Rumours continue to swirl among the Spanish that there is still an enormous and wealthy empire they have not found. And just as the orgy of pillage of the Aztecs has calmed down, a monumental discovery is made. In 1528, Francisco Pizarro, exploring along the Pacific coast of South America, finds a wealthy city belonging to the Incan Empire. Up to this point, the Inca had been little more than a rumour. He returns in 1531 and overthrows the empire. The treasure of this empire is rapidly brought to Spain along with even more stories and the hugely productive silver mines of the Inca fall into Spanish hands. In the space of just 13 years, Spain has gone from one of Europe's poorest nations to controlling the wealth of three empires, laden with more gold than many could possibly have imagined. Single treasure ships during this period carried more gold than the annual tax incomes of many European kingdoms. Tens of thousands of treasure seekers flocked to the now Spanish Americas in search of gold and silver, unaware that the largest prizes had already been taken. Rumours about rich empire ready for the plunder had for once in history turned out to be completely true. Unfortunately for the locals. And especially unfortunately for the locals, telling these greedy and desperate second wave conquistadors you already got all the gold just wasn't going to cut it. It is in this second wave of conquest that the first mention of El Dorado is found. When, in 1531, a man who is either a soldier or a diplomat is captured by Pizarro's forces, he tells them of a nearby wealthy kingdom, where the chief covers himself in gold dust. This story is the origin of El Dorado, not as a city but a man covered in gold dust. But the implication of the story was clear. A society so abundant with gold they can dip their leaders in it each day. Now, this might shock you, but people imprisoned and tortured by genocidal lunatics looking for gold are not always the most reliable sources of information. Nevertheless, every conquistador with an ounce of ambition was desperate for the next empire to fell, and stories ran like wildfire among them of another hidden kingdom dripping with gold. And at this point, why wouldn't they believe in it? After all, the wealth of the Aztecs was just a story till Cortes conquered them. The story of the Incan wealth was just a rumour till Pizarro proved it was real. Why not El Dorado, the Golden One? Now the story of El Dorado would morph from the Golden One to a Golden City to a Golden Empire, becoming grander and grander with each retelling. But today we are just going to focus on the first myth of the Golden One and the origins of this story. Many expeditions have been led into South America in search of El Dorado, but the first was this. Following the story of a wealthy kingdom hidden deep inland, many in Pizarro's forces wished to lead the next great conquista, and in 1536 the Quesada brothers won the honour to go. The Quesadas Gonzalo and Jimenez ventured with 800 men into modern-day Colombia in search of El Dorado. Instead, they found the Muisca people, a small but prosperous confederation in the mountains of central Colombia. It is possible that the Muisca were the Meta people who the indigenous Venezuelans had told the conquistadors about in 1531. A sizable confederation, the Muisca mined emeralds and worked some gold, but compared to the Inca or the Aztec, their wealth was certainly not earth-shattering. The Quesadas described them as wretched, and that there was little other than maize and yuca to loot. 
the gold they did loot from the Muska would barely pay for the expedition. Worse, the Muska put up a good fight. Of the 800 Spaniards who found their way into the interior, just 180 found their way out again. It was during this expedition what would become Bogota would be founded. And yet what could have been a dismal failure would go on to found one of the most successful colonies of the new Spanish Americas. And 100 years later, Juan Rodriguez Frial, one of the first historians of the New World, would retell stories of hidden gold and gold-covered chiefs as accepted fact, clearly showing that the stories did not die, and also possibly contained some truth. Juan Rodriguez Frial was a 17th century Spaniard born in the New World who wrote some of the first histories of the Americas, and he gave us some of the first records of the search for El Dorado. Born in 1566, Frial got much of his information from the conquistadors and pioneers who settled modern-day Colombia. Frial dedicates a whole chapter to El Dorado in his book The Conquest of New Granada, New Granada being the original Spanish name for Colombia. In 1636 he wrote, quote, at this point, the air was stripped, anointed with clay, and powdered with gold dust until he shone gilt all over. It is from this ceremony that there derived the famous legend of El Dorado, that has cost so many lives and fortunes. End quote. Frial then describes a ceremony at a sacred lake, today named Guatavita, about 75 kilometers northeast of Bogota, where the locals would cast gold into the waters as sacrifice. This, Friel tells us, is where the story of El Dorado and his vast treasure gains its mysticism. We can also see in this story some of the first division of the story from the man El Dorado, who is the golden one, to an area becoming associated with El Dorado, as a lake filled with lost treasures becomes intertwined with the man of El Dorado. So wait, hang on. El Dorado's treasure is in a lake less than an hour's drive from Bogota? That can't be right. If I just... Have I just discovered where El Dorado is? I mean, um, excuse me, I've just got to go book a flight to Colombia. So, is Guatavita El Dorado, or at least El Dorado's treasure? And what made Frial so certain that Guatavita was El Dorado's treasure? Well, during Frial's lifetime, two separate adventures had invested small fortunes trying to drain the lake with 16th century tech in search of this great lost treasure. And the reason is because there actually is some credence to this story. Both as sacrifices of goods are not uncommon through history, but also because these ventures are... successful. At least kind of. The first venture lowers the lake level through the advanced technology of buckets, and retrieves about a hundred thousand modern dollars of gold. A fair sum, but less than what it costs to drain the lake. The second venture drains a significant portion of the lake, recovers about five hundred thousand modern dollars, also less than the cost to drain the lake. A century later, a German explorer will, in 1801, estimate the lake contains $300 million in unclaimed gold. However, a salvage operation in 1898 will drain large parts of the lake, finding gold artifacts. The venture, however, fails, as the deep sludge that makes up the bottom of the lake keeps drying as hard as concrete. This expedition, like others, will cost more than is retrieved, and the company goes bankrupt. Treasure seekers continue trying to comb the sludge on and off for the next half century, till in 1965 the Colombian government designated the lake as a protected area, though some still believe the hidden riches of El Dorado are down there. They're probably not though. As Friel writes, the indigenous groups of the area, though treating the lake as holy, were not anywhere near as large and developed or wealthy as the nearby Inca. Nevertheless, these findings show that the story of the golden tribute to the lake is probably real. 
as to whether El Dorado, the gold-covered chief, was real, well, maybe. But no chronicler or conquistador ever witnessed this golden ceremony. And unfortunately, though Friel confidently asserts the truth of these stories of the golden chief, we do have to take his account with a grain of salt, as Friel asks and answers the question, where am I getting my info, in his chapter on El Dorado, and basically answers, from hearsay. Born in 1566, he had heard many of these stories from the men and women who had founded and settled the region, many of the original conquistadors. But, uh... By modern standards, that's what my dad's drinking buddy told me isn't exactly considered good history. So, was El Dorado real? Well, yes. Yes, he was. The term El Dorado, simply meaning the golden one, was coined by the Spanish to refer to the chief of the Muisca. The Spanish found the Muisca. They found their holy lake. And then they killed El Dorado, and then they took all of his gold. So El Dorado was found and stripped of his wealth. Story done? Is that, do we just move on now? But hang on, if El Dorado's kingdom was found and stripped of wealth, why did the story continue? Well, it both did and didn't, as we can see from Juan Friel. Many people, even at the time, dismissed El Dorado as a fantasy. It's not, it's not, only by by today's standards that we re suddenly realise that El Dorado was a fantasy. People realised El Dorado was a fantasy within a few years of the myth of El Dorado starting. And yet the story would hold such sway over people that the latest expedition in search of a lost city of El Dorado was in 1985 by a man named John Hemming, an Irish historian. Nearly 400 years after the story of a single golden chief told by a single prisoner of war, we are still combing the Amazon for a city which, by all accounts, was probably found and looted at the time. So dear God, why? How does this story spiral so far out of control? The first answer probably lies in the moderate take of treasure. The Inca, Aztecs, and Maya produced astronomical amounts of gold and silver. The wealth of these empires was so great it completely reshaped world history, even devaluing gold in Europe. The wealth of the Muisca was a comparative drop in the bucket. But between 1531 and 1536, the stories of the Kingdom of El Dorado was that it was another Peru, if not greater. The stories of the Golden One would go on to combine with stories of the Seven Golden Cities, which was a popular belief during and after the fall of the Aztec Empire. Sailors, traders, explorers, and conquistadors returned to Europe with stories of golden chiefs and cities, roads paved with gold and rivers so burdened that one could retrieve it by hand. If you had gone into a pub in Seville and asked about El Dorado, it is likely a half a dozen hard-bitten sailors would have jumped at the chance to tell you that they had seen it with their own two eyes. But why? Well, for starters, selling information was big business, and still is. And at the time, if you wanted to go to the Americas, you needed information. There was little to stop unscrupulous con men from telling you, oh yeah, I have a map to El Dorado right here. But this con is as old as history and still doesn't explain the perseverance of the myth, because after all, the Muisca were found and conquered. So why then did the story of El Dorado, which had been founded just a few years earlier, spiral so out of control? and morph into the idea of a city or kingdom of gold. Well, here I have to venture into some supposition. Because unsurprisingly, we don't exactly know. 
Just as modern pop cultural academics can't tell you what the next big meme trend will be, historians can't always narrow down why one story sticks in the popular imagination and another doesn't. But let's go back to the Casada brothers. Unfortunately for the Casadas, as we said, the gold and jewels of the Muisca was barely enough to cover their expedition. However, fortunately for them, the area they had, just conquered, was rich in emerald mines, and also happened to be some of the only large-scale arable land south of Mexico. But what this meant was larger overheads in setting up a profitable colony, and it just wasn't as sexy. Mexico and Peru had appeal, come to the land of gold, take all the gold you can hold, come to New Granada and work for long hours guarding my emerald mine and maybe you'll get some money and yeah, no one is turning up during that period for that kind of sell. The Casadas would be given governorship of New Granada under the Viceroyalty of Peru, however they would be given more autonomy than most colonies, and in the space of a few decades they would transform New Granada into one of the wealthiest and most influential in Spanish America. They would achieve this through large-scale agriculture and animal husbandry and the developing of a mining industry. So, supposition alert, say you were an ambitious conquistador and you've just been rewarded with some now empty fields, everyone else is now laughing their asses off pulling gold hand over fist in the neighbouring provinces, but you can see that your area has potential. But what you need is people. You need settlers to come in. Gold rushes, whether from mining or from looting, always run dry before everyone turns up. And so one of the biggest and most successful industries in any gold rush is exploiting human misery. I mean, potential. Well, as more and more conquistadors arrive, send themselves broke looking for gold, you wind up with, with hundreds if not thousands of down and out soldiers and workers desperate for a job. And it just so happens you have a job guarding your new emerald mine or managing your plantations. And maybe if stories of cities of gold is going to bring these desperate dummies into your province where you need them, then maybe you have a vested financial interest in helping to spread those stories. And maybe everyone who arrives and becomes part of the system then starts realising the same thing at some point, and also have a strong financial interest in spreading these stories back in Spain to bring in more workers and soldiers to make them rich. Now, that is pure guesswork from me, but it's not unfounded guesswork. Consider Samuel Brannan, who in 1847 opened a store in what would become Sacramento, California. When gold was discovered in the Sierra Nevadas, he bought up all the gold mining equipment in the region and then literally ran through the streets of San Francisco yelling gold. He would make a fortune selling equipment. Then he would expand into the media and newspapers, where he would flood the east coast with news of the gold rush on the west to bring in more customers to buy his equipment. He wasn't lying, there was gold in California, but it is worth noting that, that only something like half of miners turned a profit, and only a fraction of that made any real money. And weirdly, Brandon's newspapers only ever seemed to report on the people who made fortunes and how easy it was to pull out all that gold from American rivers, and weirdly, despite how easy it was to pull out all of that gold, he spent all of his time investing in buying gold mining equipment, not gold mines. Historians of the Gold Rush period have argued that Brannan effectively created the California Gold Rush. Brannan's stories would quickly propel him to become the wealthiest man in California. 
The story of El Dorado would bring desperate treasure seekers from around the world into New Granada, who would spend freely, go broke, and in the end, very conveniently, find employment in the cattle ranches, mines, and farms of the lowlands of Colombia. And as the easy gold and silver dried up, the viceroyalties of Peru and New Spain found they suddenly had little in the way of sustainable industry, which quickly resulted in civil strife. Francisco Pizarro would be assassinated by rivals, and Martin Cortes, the son of Hernan Cortes, would be caught up in a treasonous plot, be exiled, and join a rebellion in Spain led by Don Juan. New Granada, by comparison, would remain quite stable and would be granted its own viceroyalty in 1717, and given authority over modern-day Ecuador, Colombia, Venezuela, and even Panama, superseding the importance of the viceroyalty of Peru, and even vying for importance with the viceroyalty of New Spain. New Granada had been one of the last acquired areas of the Spanish Americas. It had been one of the poorest and least important, and in 50 years, it had completely turned that around. Now, one certainly can't say that El Dorado was responsible for this success, but it certainly didn't hurt, and all from the story of a single prisoner, of a man covered in gold dust. And as for the myth of El Dorado, well, in the end, the myth is that it wasn't really a myth. There really was an El Dorado and his kingdom and some treasure. It was just a bit too boring to supersede the legend, which had evolved out of control in the bars of Seville, told by drunken sailors to greedy idiots. That is all we have time for today. Thank you for joining me. Feedback can be sent to historicalhysteria at gmail.com and don't forget to check the socials r slash historicalhysteria on Reddit and at Manic History on Twitter. But before I leave, let me leave you with this. The word curfew, meaning a set time at which people have to be indoors by, derives from a practice of ringing a curfew bell, which was to signal people that it was time to cover their fires. This practice came from Old French and the word curefou, which loosely translates to covering your fire and was used to preserve the fire and the coals within it through till the morning and to prevent wooden structures from catching a light. The term became associated with civil order measures during the Norman conquest of Britain when Anglo-Saxons were ordered to curfew their fires in order to prevent them conducting meetings after dark. Goodbye.